So, uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Tim Hoflinger. I am the Campus Life Director for middle school students here in Columbus. Uh, Campus Life is part of a larger organization called Youth for Christ, which last year we just celebrated our 75th anniversary, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, I have not been on staff that long, um, but the first guy that was on staff was a guy by the name of Billy Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, so things have changed over the years. Things have evolved a little bit uh, from when he began. Uh, but I will tell you this. I absolutely love what I get to do. Um, so basically, if you don't know anything about Campus Life, I'm a missionary here in Columbus. And some people hear that and they think, well, you know, I always thought a missionary was somebody that went into like a strange place where they spoke strange language and wore strange clothing. And I'm like, that's, that's what I do. I work with middle schoolers. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's kind of how that works. Um, I would love if any of you are interested in finding out more about what Campus Life is, how you might be able to get involved and plugged in. Uh, please come find me afterwards, or uh, we can set up a time sometime to get coffee or whatever, and I, I'd love to talk to you more about that. But uh, that's just a little picture of who I am and why I'm sitting here. Uh, so today I want to focus our attention on one small word, uh, and it seems trivial, it gets used all the time in conversations, and it can seem rather insignificant for the most part. The word is but, the one with one T, not the one with two T's. I, I joked around with Carson uh, earlier this week, I said I thought about naming this uh, sermon uh, the greatest but in the Bible, but I wasn't sure how exactly that would be received. Uh, but you'll, you'll understand why in, in a few minutes here. Um, so this word can carry great significance. I, I don't know, for the, how many of you are parents out there? You have kids, or, or in some kind of family-type relationship, you know, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a sibling. Have you ever said, I love you, but? And then there's something that follows, right? We may have had this conversation at our house this morning. It, it happens all the time. You know, you say, I love you, but it really drives me crazy when you do this. Or, you know, when you use that conjunction, it tends to cancel out the first half of the sentence, right? You, if I were to tell my kids, I love you, but, you know, it, it drives me crazy when you leave the lights on all over the house, which it does. <laughs> what part of the sentence do you think stuck? Do you think it was the, I love you, or it drives me crazy when you do this? It drives me crazy. Right, the it drives me crazy when. Now, I think it's still important to say I love you, because I think that gets heard, but it has a tendency to kind of minimize the impact of the first part of the sentence. Uh, so... This is one of the smallest words in the English language, but it carries a lot of significance. It can bring destruction, or it can even bring healing, right? So I want to take that for just a moment. We're going to come back to that. There's another phrase that often gets used by, by people in lots of different settings. And the phrase is, that's not fair. That's not fair. Have you ever said that before? Now, there are certain situations where things truly are not fair. You know, they're, like, Herb was talking about his friend. You know, it's not fair that his friend 
got cancer. But oftentimes it gets used in terms of, you know, for example, you know, we do after school clubs in the middle schools. And I might give a prize for winning a game. You know, a kid might get a bite-sized candy bar. And they're like, oh, that's so cool. And then I'll say, well, the winner of the next game gets a free milkshake. Well, that's not fair. Why isn't it fair? Did I determine what the prize was going to be for the certain game? You know, why is that not fair? Did either person deserve a prize? No. So here's another example, maybe to put it just in a level playing field with us adults. Uh, and this has happened to me before. You know, have you ever been in a conversation with, you know, there are flashing lights going on in the rearview mirror and the guy comes up to the window and he's like, do you know how fast you're going? What's the answer? Every time. No. No, of course I don't. You know, and you say, but officer, you know, this person was going, that guy was going 20 miles an hour faster than I was. He blew right by me. That's not fair. What do you think he says? Were you speeding? Right. Were you speeding? Well, yeah. Okay. Then here's your ticket. Have a nice day. Right? Uh, but that guy was driving so much faster than I was. It's not fair. Well, yes, it is. I actually got a ticket about 15 years ago. I was going six over on 465. Do you know the speed limit on 465? 55 miles per hour. <laughs> Do you think anyone drives 55 miles per hour? No. I got a ticket for going 61 in the 55, and Kelly and I had a conversation about it, actually. She said, that's not fair, I'm going to fight it, you know, whatever, and she said, hey, hypocrite, you broke the law, pay the ticket, get over it. I don't think you got over it. <laughs> I paid the ticket. <laughs> Quiet down, So Jesus actually told a parable about this. He, he said there was a, a landowner. He owned property, and he needed some work done on his property. So he went into town, hired some guys early in the morning, said, I need you to do some work. This is what I'm going to pay you. And at the end of the day, you know, I'll write you a check. Or probably gave him cash. They probably didn't have a check back then. Uh, so the landowner noticed partway through the day that this work was not going to be completed on time. So he goes back into town. You know, it's around lunchtime, and he hires more people. And he says... I'm going to pay you this price to do this job. You only have to work half a day, but I'm going to pay you this amount of money. Well, he notices even further on in the day that the work is not going to get done. So he goes back into town a third time, and he gets more people. They only have to work a couple hours. And he said, I'm going to pay you this amount to do this kind of work, and, and you only have to work two hours, and this is what I'm going to pay well, at the end of the day, the landowner comes back and he starts handing out the money. We're, let's just say it was $100 for the day. So he hands the people that were there all day $100. Here's $100. Thank you for your work. Here's $100. Then he comes to the next people, the people that were only there half a day, and he gives them $100. And he says, here you go. Thanks for your work. I appreciate it. And then he comes to the last group, the people that only had to work one or two hours. And he says, here's $100. Thank you. Well, what do you think the people in the first group said? That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not fair. I did so much more work than they did, and they're getting the same amount. Well, the landowner comes back and says, did you agree to work for that amount of money for that amount of time? Well, yeah. Yeah, I did. So, was it fair that the last group got paid the, the same amount that the first group did? Yeah. Yeah. Because they agreed to it. 
Now, there's another story in the Old Testament, and this is kind of a crazy story. So there's this guy named Jacob, and he notices this girl, and he says, I want to marry this girl. So he goes to the girl's father and says, I want to marry your daughter. Well, he says, now this, this story, I would argue, is not fair, just to give you the, the disclaimer there. So he goes to the guy and he says, I want to marry your daughter. What do I need to do to marry your daughter? He says, work for me for seven years and you can have her hand in marriage. Things worked a little differently back then than they do now. Uh, so if I had done that when I was going to, uh, Kelly probably would have said, no, I don't want you. <laughs> Get out of here. Leave. I want somebody else. Uh, so Jacob agrees to this. Says, I will work for seven years for you in order to marry your daughter. Well, Jacob works for seven years, tirelessly works, and he's so excited. Can you imagine? He gets to that last day of work, and he says, finally, I'm going to get to marry this girl named Rachel. Well, he gets to the wedding, and I don't know necessarily how things worked back then, because the way the story is described is he didn't notice that he had married the wrong girl until after... <laughs> everything had already taken place. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to ask God this question when I see him someday, like, what what was the tradition like here? Maybe I could do some digging and find out. But So, he married the wrong sister. He had worked seven years to marry this woman, and the father gave him the wrong sister. So, he says, which I think this would be a little heartbreaking, but he says, what do I need to do to marry the other daughter? Because they could marry multiple people then. So he says, work another seven years. <laughs> work another seven years and you can have my other daughter to marry. So he does it. He works another seven years and ends up having two wives. And, I mean, there's a lot of unfair in this. So the... The first woman that he married, it's unfair that she kind of, I mean, can you imagine what she felt like? <laughs> it's not, it's not fair, but it also wasn't fair. Jacob agreed seven years, worked for this, did the work, didn't get what he was promised. So it's not fair. All right, we're going to tie these two things together. We're going to tie this word, but, and it's not fair together. Um, There is, I'm going to read this scripture for you in just a moment here, but it comes from Ephesians 2. And there's a small phrase in here that says, but God. And I believe, this is my opinion, so we can talk about it afterwards if you have a different opinion of two more powerful words, but I think these are the two most powerful words in the entirety of the Bible. In all of scripture, I think, these two words carry the most weight. So let me read from Ephesians 2. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn, you can go ahead and look. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you're curious. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. I'm going to pause right there. I want you to hear this. You were dead. It's not that you were wounded it's not that you were in really rough shape. It's not that you were at rock bottom. This says you were dead, lifeless. 
stagnant, not breathing, your heart was not beating, you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God, so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now man, there is some power in that scripture. I think that could be a standalone sermon on its own. Just read that a few times and oh my goodness. Now this is not possible. This is Humanly speaking, this is not accomplishable. That which is dead cannot come back to life. I've heard stories before of people being resuscitated. You know, their heart stopped. There was no brain activity. There was no breathing. And people have been resuscitated. Uh, I looked it up. The longest amount of time that there was that a person was in cardiac arrest and was able to be revived was four hours. Four hours! The guy was dead for four hours. He was in a fishing accident, fell off a boat. His core temperature had actually dropped to 75 degrees, which I think is what allowed him to be able to be resuscitated. But four hours, can you imagine? Like, these people who were taking care of him were working for four hours. They didn't give up hope. They continued to work to try and revive this man. So let me ask you this. How long were you dead in your sins before you said yes to Jesus? Was it five years? Maybe 10, 20, 40? Maybe you haven't yet. It's impossible. You can't be revived after that long. That which is dead cannot be brought back to life, humanly speaking. But that which is impossible for man is possible with God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all shared that, that what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
We were dead. I was dead in my sins before I said yes to Jesus. On my own, I was not able to come back to life. I was not able to be revived. I needed God. That scripture talks about that. I need his help. I need his assistance. Because if it was up to me, then, hey, look at me, you know. Good job, Tim. You you brought your way back to God. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Now I need to communicate that I want him to, to do that for me, but that's pretty much the end of the list of what I can do to be revived. I want you to listen to this phrase again. This just, I love it. But God, who is rich in mercy and loved us so much that he sent his only son to pay the debt of my sin. Can I, I don't even know that I can honestly grasp the weight of that message. If I had an only son, let's let's use this example. Let's say I had an only child and took him to the doctor and the, they did some blood work and the doctor said, hey, we found in, in your child's blood a cure for cancer. We can take this blood and we can cure cancer with it. Oh my gosh, how many people could be saved? But if the doctor said the only problem is the catch is we would have to take his or her life. Would I, would I as a parent be willing to make that sacrifice? Could I say yes, because it will save so many, I will offer that sacrifice. I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I mean, as a parent, I think about my two kids who are sitting right here. I don't know that I could do that. I mean, despite the, the amazing things that it would do for so many people, how could I do that? But God did that. God did that. He sacrificed his only son. Did God know that Jesus was going to come back to life? Yes. Did he know that uh, he was going to come back and spend time with people again, and, and he's even going to come back again someday? Yes, he knew that. Does that make it less tragic? Not in the least. Not in the least. So here's tying the two things together. The great mercy and love of God that we are given is not fair. There is nothing that I have done, nothing that you have done, to deserve that love, to deserve that mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy and loved you so much, offered that to you. Uh, I, I used to listen to Reliant K a lot, and uh, Be My Escape is one of their songs. There's a great line in that song that says, The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. God's grace and his mercy make life not fair. It's not fair that, that my debt has been paid, but I'm going to take it. I'll take that unfair all day. I'll take it the rest of my life. I, I love that it's not fair. So what do I do with this? What, how can I take this and, and how can I use this and apply it in my life? One of the last things that Jesus said 
while he was on this planet, before he ascended back to heaven to, to sit at the right hand of God the Father, was love each other the way I have loved you. Love each other the way I have loved you. That means love each other with a sacrificial, unconditional, servant-like, foot-washing, lay-down-your-life-for-each-other kind of love. Jesus gave us the ultimate example of how to serve, how to love, how to show mercy, how to show grace. And he says to us, love each other the way I have loved you. Love each other the way I have loved you. I am convinced that if we did this, if we truly did this, if we truly lived our lives where we loved people the way Jesus loves us, that our world would look undeniably different. So where does it start? Where does it start? I want the world to look different. Where does it start? Right here. Right here. So I'm asking you to join me. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's love like Jesus loved us. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the greatest ways that Jesus showed us his love was by dying for us. There's this big wooden torture device right over here that sits there as a reminder of the price that was paid on our behalf. And the night before Jesus was murdered on this torture device, he was with his disciples and he said, guys, this is a meal. They were getting ready to celebrate the Passover. This is a meal that they had eaten probably 50 times, you know, depending on how old they were. You know, it was something that they had done a lot. They knew this tradition. But Jesus said, from now on, men, from now on, it's going to be different. From now on, when you take this meal, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember my body that I'm giving for you as a sacrifice. I want you to remember the blood that I'm going to shed on your behalf. This is the payment for your sin. So when you take this meal, I want you to remember me. How often do you guys do communion? Is it every week? I love that. We, My family, we, we go to First Christian Church, and we do communion every week. And I've heard some people say, you know, oh, well, you know, it kind of loses its meaning. I have found the exact opposite to be true. Because I find that when I reflect on that mercy, that grace, that gift that was given to me every week, it, it impacts me even more. And so as we take this meal together, we take this these elements, the bread and the, the juice, I, I just pray that you will understand the great mercy and grace and gift that's been given to you. Um, <clears throat> I want to do a song for you guys while we take communion. So if you know it and you want to join in, uh, feel free. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. Just listen. Um, it's been a while since I've sung a song in front of other people, so uh, be merciful. <laughs> oh.
Oh, we should pray for the communion prayers, probably. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, uh, but I know that that pales in comparison to the love that you have for each one of us, that you show us. I pray that as we take these uh, two simple things right now, that we will be reminded of your incredible, undeniable, unchanging, unwavering love for each one of us. Pray that you will help me to remember every moment of every day the sacrifice that you made for me so that I might be able to live my life in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.
like Jesus loves you. Denise is doing on Fridays. I know